Well, good morning. It is a pleasure for me to be here today. I'm honored that Brother Matt has allowed me the opportunity to stand before you today and to share from God's Word. It's an exciting occasion for me and especially to extend on behalf of the president of Blue Mountain College, Dr. Barbara McMillan, our gratitude to all that you do, praying for us, and through your gifts, through the cooperative pro program, sustaining us. Beyond that, this church has been extraordinarily generous to us, and we're so grateful for your additional gifts and also through your service. We're, we're so blessed that we've had members of this congregation serve as trustees on our board. Right now, Mike Claiborne is one of our board members. We're so grateful for his wisdom and his leadership there. Jeff Cox served until recently, rotated off in December and was a blessing to us. And I understand Mitch Waycaster was not too long ago also on our board. And so the influence and the wisdom of these who have served in that capacity is absolutely priceless to us at Blue Mountain College. We're so excited over what God's been doing. I don't know if you've heard or not, but in recent years we've had unprecedented enrollment growth there at the college. And uh, I'm just going to throw a little teaser out. In the next few months, we anticipate sharing news uh, announcements to Mississippi Baptists that you will find extremely exciting. And, and so we're, we're looking forward to the days ahead and sharing those announcements and what God is doing as he positions this college to advance kingdom work. When people ask uh, why we moved to Mississippi, uh, one of the questions that followed very quickly was, did you have family in Mississippi? Did that play a role in your decision? And, and our first response was, well, no, we didn't have any family here. Uh, at least it didn't play a, a role in the decision, but actually that was not entirely true. We do have family here. We've just never met them. So um, we're, we'll, we'll work on that maybe. Uh, many years ago, my wife, like maybe many of you, she was doing some uh, family history uh, on our, both sides of the family, and she found that in her family, beginning with her grandfather on her dad's side, she has roots in Mississippi, in Monroe and Calhoun County, and so uh, because her grandfather passed away before her parents even married, she never met him or any of those family members, but her roots are right here in North Mississippi. And so in those days when she was doing the research, she actually corresponded with some of those extended family members to gain information about her family. And she found that there was on her uh, dad's side, I forget exactly how, I think a third cousin of her dad's uh, had actually done some genealogical research himself. He paid someone to do it, and they produced a book. And, and my wife was able to purchase the book and the reason he, he did that was because he was quite well-known himself. Uh, he had become famous, and, and his name was Harold Jenkins. And so my wife reached out to Cousin Harold, and he sent her a copy of the book and even autographed the inside of the book. And so we've got a picture of, of that, uh, hopefully, to show you. And you can see, there it is. So you see my wife's name, Terry, and that's kind of hard to read, but... It doesn't look like it says Harold Jenkins, does it? So <clears throat> maybe he was a doctor. Maybe that's... Anyway, so I've got a picture of him on the cover of the book. I want you to see. Maybe you'll recognize him then. Because he was so famous, and as a performer, he changed his name like a lot of performers do. And so if we see a picture of the cover of the book, has anybody ever heard of Conway Twitty? 
Conway Twitty is one of my wife's famous distant relatives. So hello, darling. Uh, when she did that research all those years ago, we thought, maybe someday we'll go to Mississippi. Maybe we'll go to some of those places associated with your roots and learn more about your family history. Never did we imagine that God in his providence would have us pack up our family and move to northeast Mississippi to become involved in his work at Blue Mountain College, equipping students with a biblical worldview that would transform their lives and their ability to serve God in every vocational calling. Last week, Brother Matt highlighted the importance of a biblical worldview. He was talking about the sanctity of life and he talked about a biblical worldview views life differently than a secular worldview does. Increasingly, we find that the world pressures us to conform to their way of thinking, their way of viewing life. And that's why schools like Blue Mountain College are so important. We don't just teach the same information at Blue Mountain. Our teaching students, our education majors, take the same tests that education majors at other schools take. They have the skills, they have the knowledge in their subject area, but there's something more about an education at Blue Mountain College, and it's that biblical worldview. Viewing life, viewing reality, viewing truth through the lens of God's word. All truth is God's truth, and if it doesn't align with God's truth, it is not true. That is the difference between a Blue Mountain College a Mississippi college, a William Carey University. That's the difference between Christian education and secular education. It's the worldview, the perspective through which we teach the material that makes all the difference in the world. The Apostle Paul told the Roman Christians in Romans 12 to not be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And so increasingly we find that the world is trying to pressure us and it's relentless in its effort to conform us to a godless way of looking at reality. Those who seek to follow Christ, those who seek to live in obedience to the word of God, find mounting pressure to be silent. Silencing the voice of those who want to follow Christ has been a tactic for a long, long time. In the days of the early church, there were efforts to silence the believers. You remember the apostles were jailed, and when they were released, they were told, teach no more in the name of Jesus. They would silence our voice. When that didn't work, they, they eventually would persecute the church. They would drive them from their communities, and when that didn't silence them, they involved the government. Make it illegal if we can. Intimidate them, frighten them. But whatever we do, we must silence the truth. The idea that the creator God is the one who determines what's right and what's wrong. It must be silenced. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. There in that passage, we see a time in the history of the early church where political pressure, where the government became involved in an effort to silence 
the word of God, to silence God's people. And I want us to see how the early church dealt with that in this occasion. In Acts 12, we read, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. His chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Our passage can be divided into two parts. The first four verses talk about the way things are. It's a very accurate description of of the before, if you will. And and then being in verse 6, you have the after. And and those two sections hinge, if you will, uh, on verse 5, so that what happens after is explained by verse 5, after you've envisioned the first four verses, the way things are. Uh, To put it another way, in light of the way things are in the opening verses, how can we possibly explain what happened in the second half of the passage? And Luke says in verse 5, here's how you explain it. God intervenes in response to prayer. God intervenes in response to prayer. There are a couple of passages in the Old Testament that have really brought this home powerfully to me in my own life. The first is found in Exodus 17. There we find the the story of the battle of uh, the people of Israel 
and Amalek. Beginning in verse 8 of Exodus 17, it says, Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of a hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So verse 11 shows us what's going on. Is Moses' hands are up, Joshua prevails. His hands are down, Amalek prevails. And I wondered for a long time when I read that, what was the deal about the hands up, hands down? And, and I realized one day, this is prayer, a, a posture of prayer. We bow our heads, we fold our hands, we get on our knees. They also held their hands up in prayer. And what we see is Moses prayed, the battle went with Moses' prayers. As Moses prayed, Joshua prevailed. When Moses got tired and quit praying, Amalek prevailed. So the battle in the valley was nothing more than a reflection of a battle being fought on the hill by Moses as he prayed. Friend, God responds to prayer. Another passage that brings this principle home and in a way that is from the, the opposite angle is found in Ezekiel 22. There in verse 30 it says, And I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. In this case, God wanted to intervene. He wanted to show mercy and compassion to his people, but he couldn't because no one could be found who would pray. No one could be found as an intercessor. God intervenes in response to prayer. And when there is no prayer, there may be no intervention. Don't misunderstand me. Does God need our prayers? Absolutely not. God does not need our prayers. But Scripture teaches over and over that much of the time, God waits to respond until His people pray. God's intervention is a response to prayer. So what does our passage in Acts 12 teach us about prayer? Verse 5, that, that hinged verse. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made. Prayer provides, or it gives us that invitation. Prayer invites the living God into your circumstances. Luke goes to such great lengths to describe how hopeless this situation is. Peter's got uh, a jailer chained to one arm and another jailer chained to the other one. He's got two jailers at the door and they're rotating their shifts. Nobody's going to get sleepy. He can't scratch his nose without somebody knowing about it. 
Perhaps the Sanhedrin had told Herod, hey, you got to be careful with this one. Peter's a slippery one. He's been in jail before and got out, and we can't explain it, so you better double down on your efforts. And Herod spared no expense to make sure that Peter would stay in prison until the day of his execution. He had done all that he could do, but prayer was being made on Peter's behalf. When you pray for someone, you invite the living God into that circumstance, into that situation. A lot of folks have been going to the movies this summer watching Top Gun. Anybody watch Top Gun? So one of Tom Cruise's movies from years ago, Night and Day, 2010. I like that movie. It's funny. And there's a scene in the movie where, where Tom, he's, he's uh, I don't know, CIA or something like that, and, and uh, he's, people think he's gone rogue, and they're out to get him, and he gets... Cameron Diaz involved in it, and they're being chased and shot at and all that good stuff that guys like to see. And they're on top of this parking garage because they need to change vehicles, and she doesn't want to be a part of this. She's done. She didn't sign up for this. She wants to go back to her life and normal, and he's trying to explain to her the odds of her survival with him versus the odds of her survival without him. And he goes, with me, without me. With me, without me. Survive with me, survival without me. That's your odds. I, I feel like that's the way God offers us the opportunity to live life with prayer. When we become people of prayer, we invite God into our circumstances so that going through our day, going through our life with God, without God. With God, without Him. Do we invite Him in? Do we invite His power? Do we ask for His wisdom with God? Or do we do it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, with our own resources, with God, without Him? We invite God when we pray. And I, I find, as I think about these things, that I feel woefully inadequate. I don't feel like I do this very well, and I don't understand it, and I get frustrated, and, and I, I turn to the Lord and I say, God, why can't I pray better? Why aren't my prayers more effective? Maybe you feel that way sometimes. And as I've wrestled with those issues, God has gently and, and sometimes uh, very clearly showed me that, Bob, not everything you were doing was praying. Worry is not prayer. Rehearsing all my worries at the throne of God is not prayer. Paul said in Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul saw a difference between worry and prayer. They are not the same thing. And in all honesty, there were days I thought I was praying when all I was doing was worrying at the foot of the throne. Worry's not prayer. Talking to yourself isn't prayer either. And I have that problem sometimes. I'm driving down the road and I think this is a good opportunity to pray. You know, windshield time, prayer time. I start praying. And if I'm not careful down the road a little ways, next thing I realize my mind has wandered off and I've just been talking to myself. You remember Jesus told a parable about a Pharisee and a publican in Luke 18. And, and he talks about the Pharisee's prayer. And in, in Luke 18, 11, it says, And the Pharisee prayed thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Now, the vocabulary sounded like a prayer, but Jesus was very clear. The Pharisee wasn't praying to God. He was talking to himself. And I wonder, how many times am I thinking I'm praying when I'm really just talking to myself? 
It's about the focus, the direction that my heart is turned. Is it turned inward toward myself or is it turned toward God, the one I'm supposed to be addressing? Prayer is not a means to get what I want. And I don't think that anybody here thinks that God is just some cosmic Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle that you just give your wishes to God and you expect Him to do what you ask. I don't think that you're, you're like that. That's not what I mean. But the idea that prayer is a way to get what we want shows up for me when I get frustrated and when I talk to someone who has become angry with God. Do you know anybody that's got angry with God because they prayed for something and God didn't respond the way they wanted Him to? That's where it shows up. When God doesn't do what I want Him to do, and I get frustrated, I get upset, I get angry with God, I have misunderstood the purpose of prayer. Prayer is not a way for me to get God to do what I want Him to do. Learning how to pray better, how to be more effective in prayer, is not a way to learn the right words, the right combination of words, some magic formula to get God to say yes to my request. Prayer is aligning ourselves with the will of God. In Jesus' model prayer, he said it this way, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That's what prayer is supposed to be. An alignment of our life, an alignment of our circumstances, God with your will on earth just as it is in heaven. So I would have been frustrated if I had been in the church in Acts 12 because I would have been trying to figure out, Lord, why? Why when we prayed for Peter did he get released and we prayed for James and he got killed? They executed James. Lord, where did I miss it? What did I pray right and what did I pray wrong? And I'd be trying to figure out how to pray right so that more Peters would get released and fewer Jameses would be executed. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But I would be trying to figure it out. How do I get God to do what I ask Him to do? That's not the way it works. One day I read Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, 36 is where it's recorded. And, and it it's so clearly shows me how Jesus prayed. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. See, he was inviting the living God into his situation. All things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. He made his request. Wasn't just worrying. He made his request, but he said, not what I will, but thou, but thy will. The difference between what Jesus was praying and my frustration when I didn't get what I wanted, what I, when God didn't do what I asked him to do, was that Jesus had a different attitude in prayer. He expressed absolute confidence in the power of God, but he also expressed complete surrender to God's sovereignty. Absolutely convinced in the power of God. Nothing is beyond your reach. Nothing is impossible with you. Yet, Father, I pray in complete surrender to your will, not my will, 
but yours be done. And what I found is a, a liberation in a sense that to the degree that I can know the will of God, I can pray with boldness and confidence, but I may not always know God's will. But because my God is who He is, I can still make my requests, but I must do so in complete surrender to His will. Because it may be that Peter gets released, or it may be that James does not. And I have to be content with either one because what I wasn't taking into account was that no is every bit as much an answer as is yes. I thought the only prayers I was getting answered was when God said yes. God was saying, I've been answering all your prayers. I've been saying yes, I've been saying no. I've been saying not yet. There wasn't something wrong with your praying. You need to pray, but you need to surrender to my will and to my timing. So what else can we learn from Acts 12, verse 5? We see very clearly that we're inviting the living God in, but we also see that prayer's power can be intensified. God responds to persistent prayer. It says, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made. It reflects an ongoing prayer. The church didn't have one prayer meeting and say, okay, we prayed for Peter, what's next? What's up? And we don't need to pray about that anymore. Peter was still in prison, and as long as he was in prison, as long as he was still in need of deliverance, an answer had not yet been received, they continued to pray. So they persisted in prayer. And you know, in, in Luke 18, Jesus told a parable simply to express to his listeners that men ought always to pray and not give up. Persistence is an important element in prayer. He also tells us that God responds to fervent prayer, the church was praying fervently. There was an earnestness in it. But what I really like about this word is, this is the word Luke uses in uh, chapter 22 of his gospel. Again, the night that Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember how he prayed. And it says he prayed fervently. So much so that his perspiration, his sweat, became as drops, falling, drops of blood falling to the ground. That is intensity. When you're praying with such intensity that your perspiration becomes drops of blood, you are praying fervently. I have never prayed that fervently. But that's the intensity that they were praying with for Peter. Intensity is not something that you can just flip on like a switch. You can't just work it up and manufacture it. I think it comes with the persistence, but it also comes with deep, genuine concern about that which you're praying for. When you really care, when the matter is urgent, when it's life and death, there could be fervency come up within you as you pray and appeal to the living God. And it says that God responds to corporate prayer. The prayer being offered was made by the church. I think the greatest passage of all encouraging corporate prayer is the one we all know and we can quote together in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And the appeal is to my people. If my people will pray for their nation, if my people will pray. God responds to corporate prayer. And the thing that hinders us in corporate prayer is we're afraid to, to share prayer requests. Aren't we? Just a little bit? 
I would ask you to pray for me, but I'm, I don't know you. I'm afraid you might tell somebody else about prayer requests, and I don't want my situation to be fuel for gossip. I don't want my prayer requests and my situation that I ask you to pray for to end up being out on the grapevine before I get home. So I'm reluctant to share my prayer request. Or I'm reluctant to ask you to pray for me because if you knew what I was going through, you might look at me differently. You might think less of me. You say, well, preacher, that's your problem. That's your pride. I, it, it's there though, right? Anytime we are afraid to ask for prayer, we leave the, the power of God that's available in corporate prayer untapped. We've got to create a safe place in our congregations, in our Sunday school classes, in our grow groups, and in our all the relationships that we form the church, we've got to create safe places, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in a group, where we can say, I need you to pray for me. I don't know what to do about my son. I don't know what to do about my daughter. I'm scared to death my wife's going to leave me. We've got to create a place where people can un burden themselves with their prayer needs and know that it's not going to be gossip and know that it's not going to be something that damages their reputation, but it becomes a call to prayer, a call to the altar and a request of the living God to intervene. We have power available to us in corporate prayer. And prayer provides an opportunity to encourage other people and to give glory to God. Peter's out and he doesn't take off for, to go where it's safe. He goes back to the church so that they can know their prayers have been answered. And nothing encourages us to pray, pray more than knowing that our prayers have been heard, right? So when you're praying for someone and they tell you how God has responded, you're encouraged, you're excited, you want to keep praying. So we've got to tell people when God answers their prayers after we've asked them to pray for us. But Peter didn't stop there. In verse 17 he says, not only did he go back to the church, but he says, tell James and the brethren, let the news be known what God has done. There's power in the testimony of God's activity in our midst, and especially in response to prayer, because there are people who need to know that there is a God who's active in the world, who will respond to the prayers of his people, because when they hear those stories, they begin to think, if God did that for them, maybe he'll do that for me. If God answered her prayer, maybe he'll answer mine. There's a beautiful verse in Deuteronomy 4-7 that says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them? The way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. Let me ask you this morning, is there another God out there answering prayers? No. But there is one. It's ours. We call to him in prayer and he responds. We talk about the activity of our great God in response to the prayers of his people. The whole world knows there is no other people on the face of the earth whose God is so near to them as our God is to us whenever we pray to him.
So this morning, I want to ask you to do three things. I want to ask you to pray. Use every problem as an opportunity to pray, whether it's your problem or someone else's. Use every blessing as an opportunity to pray, but become a person whose day is punctuated throughout with prayer. And as God responds to your prayers, I encourage you to tell other people about it. It won't sound like bragging if you're telling them what God did instead of telling them, oh, I prayed and this is, uh, this is what happened because I prayed and in my prayer time, nah, that's not what we're talking about. Is just talk about what God did. Brag on your God whenever he responds to your prayer and watch and see if God doesn't draw people to himself through you. And the third thing is this. Start now. Start today. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow before you because you are our God. You alone are worthy of praise. You alone are the one who answers prayer. We ask God this morning, whatever it is that is weighing us down, we would feel the freedom to lay it at your feet today, not to worry about it, but to give it to you and ask for your help. Father, may we have the courage to speak up to a friend, to another brother or sister in this congregation and say, I need you to pray for me. I need help from God. And I would, I would be blessed to know that you were praying for me too. God, may we be so known as a praying people that Lee County would have to sit up and take notice. We pray it for your name's sake and for your glory and in the name of Jesus.